Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. Before we begin, I'd like to sincerely thank everyone who supports the show on Patreon. The patronage keeps rising from episode to episode and I'm very grateful for that. If you wish to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash or follow the link in the show notes. You'll not only be supporting this podcast and the idea behind it, but you'll also receive some awesome stickers and maybe even a special surprise. Today I'm joined by Simon Belak. Looking into him, I found so many things that he does that we couldn't even fit all of them in the episode. He's a philosopher hacker, a mad scientist, a founder of a theater group, works on old cars and lives a van life, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoy recording it. Here's Simon. Hi, Simon. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hi, Miha. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here with you today. Oh, as am I. Uh, I I thought I was doing a lot of things, but then I looked into you and, oh my God, the list is just endless. Um, What can I say? I kind of um, get bored easily. I need to be occupied with different things. And quite a while back, I found out that if... I'm focusing too much just on one thing. It kind of stops being interesting and challenging and just becomes tedious. So I find that kind of I'm at the most ha- I'm most happy if I'm kind of slightly jumping around between different things. So um, here I am. <laughs> so uh, why don't you give like a short description of um, who you are and, and what do you do? Currently, I'm working as a developer at Metabase. Uh, Metabase is an open source BI and analytics tool. And my mandate, kind of my long-term mandate at Metabase is to build a data scientist in a box. So what we want to do is we want to automate a lot of the most kind of repetitive and tedious tasks around analyzing data. And this, I suppose, also gives you kind of a hint as to what I'm doing. Because like, for a long time now, I've been kind of oscillating between doing data science or working in machine learning and working as a kind of a straight-up developer. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like doing this in at some point also led me to kind of a slight detour into growth hacking, especially because we're kind of on a, I was on the lookout for cases where you can actually use data and a very, I suppose, bottom-up approach rather than kind of this, you know, high-flung management speak about turning companies data-driven and such. But I was actually looking for cases where you can apply data and it has kind of shows meaningfully and you can you can actually think about how to set up processes around data. And I found this kind of growth hacking was an ideal case for that so i was sort of here and there doing that but from a very much from a data and analytics standpoint rather than from a marketing standpoint mm-hmm. and like aside from that then kind of my background is of some combination of data science and machine learning jobs going very very far back actually now that i think of it like i've never held any other job except for um, programming. I think like, my first gig was when I was 16 years old, and then it's kind of kept doing it. Even though, like for a long time, I didn't kind of um, expect this to become my main thing or my career. But um, here we are. Not to go uh, in into the tangent for too much, but I heard that like Metabase has like really um, not that many people working there. Like the whole thing is like a really skeleton crew. Oh yeah, um, there's just six of us. Oh wow. Um, but like we are open source, so we also we do get some contributions as well. But um, I still think that's kind of like as as in most open source projects, like the core team does the kind of majority of the work. But yeah, we're kind of um, all of us are developers or kind of UX design people. So we're just kind of absolutely no kind of uh, no people that don't contribute actually contribute to the project, and that kind of allows us to be 
as lean, or at least at, until this point, has allowed us to be very lean in doing what we do. Yeah, yeah, and and it looks very polished. Like it definitely looks like a work of a of a bigger team over a longer period of time. But yeah, apparently not. Working with data is quite complex, and we try to simplify as much of that as possible. So we're kind of really mindful to not introduce kind of new paths through. Um, the user interface and are mindful of what kind of the flow of working with data, like what the flow of an explorative analysis is, rather than just thinking through features and how you want to um, analyze data. And this, of course, also means that at some points, like we have to say no to things that like people might want, and we're definitely not as fully featured as a lot of our competition. And a lot of this is also kind of intentional because mm -hmm. what we do, we, we want to kind of nail it and want it to be to be enjoyable to use and to kind of minimize friction mm -hmm. and. You know, this is like one thing that um, I think, and I guess I'm going to start kind of touching on the the stuff I'm also interested about in outside just computers. Like one of them is philosophy, where I'm reading and thinking a lot about um, kind of how tools shape our being in the world. Yeah, I was just about to ask you that because, like, in your bio, you say philosopher hacker. So, are you hacking the philosophy, or are you the the hacker who's also a philosopher, or like what's what's behind that uh, bio? Uh, uh, this is like I, I guess it's kind of a very um, oblique reference to um, you know Plato had this notion of philosopher kings and instead of a king I have a philosopher hacker so just kind of a, <laughs> a tongue in check but um, yeah I mean I actually studied philosophy so like I mean I do dare say that I'm kind of legit philosopher rather than because you know philosophy is one of those things that's um, kind of the world itself is oftentimes kind of slightly abused or just people are saying that they're kind of philosophers are doing something at the moment you kind of think about something um mm -hmm. and it's like i i don't like kind of this kind of a misuse of any kind of term um i do think it still kind of has its own you know like it is a discipline that it has its own methods and way of thinking and doing and just kind of so it shouldn't be applied to um all things okay R rent over sorry <laughs> no it's good it's good what I was, was getting before is kind of this notion of how um, you know any tool that we use changes us, and like tool here can be full of a very very wide sense. Like for me, like the first tools and probably like the almost the, the most interesting to analyze are things such as language, uh, writing, and even cities. Like all those are kind of tools that have changed how we live our world. And now if if you imagine like the, the most basic example, just writing. Uh, we know that this kind of you can have you can hold in your head kind of ten, seven maybe ten different things, um, mm -hmm. but the moment you can write, you're just kind of you've extended what you can hold in your head by what you can also write down, and suddenly you can have much more complex dialogues even with yourself just by this simple notion of having a tool that allows you to somehow write things down or some sort of notation, even if it's not language writing proper just some sort of notation that helps you keep tracks of things you have in your head and that kind of massively explodes all the options and possibilities you have to think about um and the like it's the same with a lot of tools but also there on the flip side the the more you use a tool the more it also kind of changes you and imposes its own limitations on your thinking that's why i'm kind of very mindful when talking about kind of any kind of tools is the what kind of, what are the limitations? What are you know the frictions in using the tool? There's something that's kind of mm, tedious or not fun to do. You're not you're going to do it less and less likely, and that's going to kind of 
as the times go by, it's going to just close and close how you actually think about problems because it's going to be re- your thinking is going to reflect the tools you have available. Mm-hmm. That's why I, th- I think it's kind of very important that tools, especially something like Metabase, where you're kind of working with data and it's completely kind of um, indifferent to the type of data you have. So it has to be it mustn't make kind of decisions for you in terms of how you're going to approach this. And that also means not just in terms of what, like, what you can do, but also in terms of what's hard to do or what's um, un- kind of inconvenient to do, because the things that are inconvenient are going to be the things you're going to be doing less and less. And that can have, a, I think, a much more profound effect than the things you kind of, you're aware of, because, you know, those are kind of the things you unconsciously don't do. And it kind of starts to becoming this kind of, unknown that you don't simply don't think about and that's i think kind of much more dangerous in terms of just um hygiene of thinking as it, as it were yeah that's um a very interesting way to to look at things like i, I never thought about it uh, like like this before but yeah it makes makes perfect sense um so is uh, everyone in Metabase sort of like um, philosophy leaning or is this uh, are you the resident philosopher in the in the crew <laughs> No, I think I'm, I'm definitely the resident uh, philosopher. <laughs> but like we are kind of a bunch with the very wide-ranging interests, everything from onwards from birds um, and so forth. So it is kind of a multi-crew. I, I don't know if you listened to the previous discussions, but like I, we talked with Matiz Jurglic about stoicism and and that. And um, is you said you studied philosophy, so is there any philosophy that you follow, or do you just like to um, think about them and and compare them and like reason through them? Like, um, how how do you approach philosophy? Um, like, for me, philosophy is this kind of giant toolbox. So. Always, when I kind of when I'm doing philosophy, when I'm writing or something, it's going to tend to be kind of very eclectic. Like I'm not one of those philosophers who has found his philosopher or his school of thought and just kind of uses that um, because maybe just because I haven't found something that resonated so much with me. But I think just kind of um, I much more like this kind of approach of combining things and kind of building something a, mm-hmm. a new. Like the the thing I find much more exciting and fulfilling is kind of combining elements to create something new rather than um being kind of created how you um reassemble the pieces within this kind of a very rigid or limited framework mm-hmm. um so and i guess this also kind of answers like the first part of your question that like um i wouldn't consider myself like following stoicism or anything like that is kind of again philosophy is more for me uh tool for to for thinking Mm -hmm. rather than uh kind of having this fully blown uh life philosophy and you said you studied it so how why did you why did you decide to to study that or like what brought you to philosophy were you interested in it before or is it just something that you didn't know what to do so you went for philosophy or like what was it no like i was already interested in philosophy in high school i was sort of kind of reading a, a lot and and so kind of when it came time to go to uni i was kind of spread between either i wanted to do physics or philosophy like, <laughs> that's an interesting combination <laughs> yeah but it's like the, like there is a um a key behind it because um i think if anything i'm fundamentally very very curious mm-hmm. and if you push your curiosity to the kind of 
to its end, you're going to either end up in philosophy or in physics. So from that perspective, it kind of made sense. And like when I first enrolled, I decided on physics, but I kind of was pretty dissatisfied with the whole program and just like wasn't what um, I was looking for. I guess like it, it didn't feed my curiosity in a way that um, I was hoping for or what I was looking for. Um, and so I kind of then decided at first, like more kind of on a, on a whim to just um, attend a couple of lectures on philosophy and see like, am I missing something? Or maybe just like that I don't like the university at all or whatever. And I really got, kind of got hooked. So I then mm-hmm. switched uh, to philosophy and well, here I am. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. The physics is also um, sort of, yeah, an uh, untouchable thing. Um, and and it's, it changes constantly. And it feels like we will never know it all like with philosophy like we'll, we'll never completely understand things we can just reason and have models around it yeah and it's like it's also kind of this you know a, a discipline i suppose that spends a lot of time just thinking about its own methods rather than just kind of taking them as a given but you are in like the, the more you kind of the more you're pushing physics the more you're also com- coming against just the limitations of the methods like both in the experimental sense and in a completely kind of like um, theory or philosophy of science if you will Mm -hmm. Uh, like you know right now a lot of what we consider kind of cutting edge physics is also in some ways on the edge of what we can even consider science as such natural science as such because out of it it is simply um unverifiable with experimental means and things so it, it is kind of i suppose like in a lot of ways in an interesting kind of position and yeah I, I think kind of i'm drawn to like disciplines where you do have this kind of where a self-reflection is kind of internal to what you do and is that also what got you interested in theater yeah um actually kind of my involvement in theater uh was kind of a d- direct offshot from philosophy hmm. um because i was I mean, like, I'm a theater goer for a very long time. So, like, I come from kind of a theater family. Like, both my grandfather and grandmother were theater people. Mm-hmm. So, I was kind of um, brought up going to theater and everything. But, like, I was always just an audience member. And then, um, during studying philosophy, I got to write about theater a couple of times. And just, like, at first, it was just kind of assigned uh, to me. And then I was going to start picking it because it felt there's, like, something interesting there. Especially because... Um, one of the themes in philosophy that I also like that I pursue is um, this question of, I suppose, breaking point of language. You know, um, I suppose poetry is the best example of that. You know, like poetry in other ways works exactly because it's kind of agrammatical because it breaks the normal grammar and how language should be, and from that um, emerges new meaning. And I find this kind of very fascinating. Sort of like what happens at this kind of breaking of uh, at this breaking points, mm-hmm. um, and theater is kind of a another way i suppose to go beyond language because you have all this kind of other um means of expression just you know you have something that's kind of i suppose unique to theater or performance art just kind of just the presence of a body on the stage which can conjure like completely new meanings that are almost kind of impossible to catch in with any other medium so there was this kind of a natural i suppose extension from the things i was already kind of pursuing in philosophy so I wanted to kind of dig slightly deeper because at, like, at the same time, you know, when you're a philosopher in some ways, like you can say something about almost anything, 
but it can be kind of pretty shallow or um to put it in a less nice terms like it, <laughs> pretty soon you start kind of bullshitting or you just use this you know as a jumping off point and then you revert to philosophy to just kind of use it as this kind of first association that then brings you back to philosophy rather than actually engaging with whatever is at hand um so i want to kind of dig deeper into theater and i decided it's kind of basically probably the best way would be to attend some like theory classes at uh the academy for theater mm -hmm. um and then kind of that set me off on a a road to actually end up even doing some theater as a theater director yeah and i i read that you're also a founder of um of a theater so um do you produce your own plays or did, did you first start with some already like existing ones do you do some twist on them like how do you usually approach a new a new production new play um uh, it's not like i'm not a founder of a theater just like a theater group okay. so we weren't kind of based anywhere but um like much more transient i suppose mm -hmm. um no it's kind of a i mean like i'm still like enough of a philosopher and i suppose also kind of a enough of a geek that i i like to have something written before me as, as a material like i like this kind of a i suppose dialogue that you have with yourself that's mediated by something like a text so it would be kind of i i just kind of d don't see my theater making practice that it would kind of work well without having some sort of material so i always kind of started from something but it was kind of a combination like or a kind of variety both like um i i did for instance Prometheus, which is like an ancient Greek play, and then also like for some plays, I had new text written, and some of it was from poetry. So, so there's kind of very different sources, but I like to have this kind of a textual source that you can then play with. And it might be that this like playing with also like entails it that it ends up being as a sort of a remix or just using fragments of things. But I do want to have kind of something to fall back on, and mm -hmm. again. I guess it's kind of the same dynamic I was explaining before. If you just kind of do doodle or write things down, and that expands how you think. And text is again kind of another example of that. That's kind of this kind of a something external to you with which you can have in some ways a dialogue through um, which you deepen your own understanding of things. And how big is the group? Like how many of you are there? Unfortunately, we've more or less stopped operating now, but we were kind of. At different stages, like I suppose there's differently sized, but it was somewhere, somewhere between five and maybe ten. Um, but it, it was like it was very kind of um, informal, I suppose, because what kind of originally brought us together was a critique of the mainstream theater establishment. So, mm -hmm. of course, like, I, and the moment like you position yourself as such, you do also kind of, um, I suppose, like if if you want to be. Um, actually kind of sincere with your intentions you also have to do away with a lot of the kind of more formal structures and stuff so it was um a very i suppose fl fluid group in terms of the kind of people joining us and then like maybe doing a couple of projects and then just kind of going their own way and so mm -hmm. i suppose like first and foremost it was just kind of a group of like we were group of friends that was like love doing things together and then the kind of and it also turned out that we had shared both obviously passions in terms of theater but also shared views or at least dissatisfactions in how things should be and that kind of provided um 
a good creative environment and creative mix. And what were like the main dissatisfactions? Just like the status quo of the theater, like that nothing is changing or something else? Yes. Like, I mean, some of them were just kind of, uh, I suppose, structural in terms of how things are produced and this kind of, you know, hyper production. And, and this is something that's kind of not even limited to theater or even art, but you, can, you get the same thing for instance, in science, this need to constantly churn out new and new. Um, new and new articles like to do something kind of, I, to just kind of keep producing because that's the only way you can get funding and then obviously creativity suffers and it just even the kind of conditions in which you work then change because you know like take any of the big institutional theaters they know that they need to do like i don't know 10 plays or five plays or whatever um mm-hmm. per year and that naturally kind of limits the time you can spend doing one play and like and oftentimes it's kind of it's fine and it's enough, but it also does close the door for a certain type of plays that might they, that might need you know two years of like this slowly building up or something. So this also like the moment like the bigger the, the theater, the more it's ironically also um, in a financially uh, precarious situation, I suppose, mm-hmm. because it's like their burn rate is that much higher, and that mm-hmm. also means and they're that much more. I suppose also kind of tied into the entire um, cultural establishment, and that also means that they are less likely to take kind of big risks, and that again kind of um, results in uh, projects like that, like plays that um, look more and more the same. Yeah almost no good art is produced right now, like in any discipline. Like there's, there are kind of some few things, but even those, I think they have this kind of, if they're good, they just like, I think they mostly have just a very momentary quality to, to um, how good they are, but we don't currently produce things that will have kind of this lasting um, staying power and lasting effect. And that is kind of a, for me, like the first signs of a very deep aesthetic crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking back, saying that, like, yeah, the the bigger it gets, the the harder it is to be um, really creative, or like it it um, it's harder for them to try new things because they're scared it might fail, and like the expenses stay the same or even higher if you try something new. I think all this also applies to to companies and why you at Metabase are at liberty of doing what you're doing because you're quite small. This enables you to do experiments that otherwise maybe you wouldn't be able to do, and like you know that you'll survive. Yeah. Definitely, um, it, it is like, and I've seen that in kind of in startups in in the past that like if you get too much money too soon, it kind of become even more kind of limiting because you mm-hmm. then also have just expectations of how your growth is supposed to be, and like the only way you see finding this growth is just spending huge and huge amounts in like growth at all costs and just scaling up the team. And I mean, it, it's not it. Like that's like what you've mentioned. Like it's one part, just like the kind of the the bigger the company, like the bigger the organization, the bigger the team, the more ossified it becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also kind of even if, the, but there are also traps in just if you have something that's growing really really fast, you have problems because what happens then is that like there are still things that take that time. For instance, onboarding, and like you can't scale a team from zero or, or let's say like from six people to 60 people in just like a couple of months yeah. and expect that it's like at the best, even if you kind of, if you manage to get 
automate a team that will function, which is already kind of a highly unlikely, mm-hmm. um, you're still going to like the company cultures are going to be completely different because instead of you know kind of passing it on and those people kind of becoming part of the company culture, it's going to, there's going to be such a huge influx of new people that they're going to simply kind of that the culture is going to shift or just kind of become completely dissipated between. Uh, different people from with kind of, with different backgrounds and views, and like, those things can have very kind of long term effects. So mm-hmm. it is kind of very easy then to just kind of slide into kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again because you simply don't have. Because I mean, I think a lot of the like this why companies are ossified is that in some ways like you can't really do anything else because anything else is going to be just kind of too dangerous that everything is going to fall apart that you yeah. kind of you manage you know to kind of to clobber together processes and structures that kind of allow you to to do what you feel is kind of successful um even though with all this kind of outside pressure and constant new people coming in and old people churning and so forth but um it's kind of it's on such a weak foundation oftentimes that it simply doesn't allow that any kind of change. So you kind of just continue on the same path because you know that like the moment you change direction, everything is going to fall apart. Mm. Yeah. This, this also explains the, um, uh, like you said, the art not being that good and like um, why you, you can be critical about it. You also had a newspaper, if I remember correctly, in this area. I, I was um, one of the editors for a couple of years on a t- Tribuna um, mm-hmm. Tribune, I suppose, um, which, which was kind of, it's actually um, like a student run or like most mostly student run kind of very alternative critical theory um, magazine that's actually kind of uh, run from, been run from la- late 50s with kind of on and off. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And um, it, it is like, if you look at the kind of, a lot of the kind of history of uh, kind of the, the more avant-garde, both um, political and art movements in Slovenia. Like you see, like a lot of people like from that also kind of at some point popped up uh, as some form of contributors to um, Tribuna. So it, it has a, like a very, very rich um, past. Um, but like, unfortunately, like I'm pretty like pretty certain that in a lot of ways, it's also kind of at least like in its current um incarnation dead because of um some rather silly and petty student politics that have essentially run it into the ground um <laughs> but like it but it, it might be that at least like some of the collaborators were kind of will will resurface in some other form um but like again i, I think it's like this kind of Concrete project like it's something that like I have very very fond memories of it and like I felt that I've learned a ton from it, um, but at the same time also like I just kind of don't see it kind of progressing and I mean, like some things it's supposed suppose it's kind of it's right that you just kind of you let them die and let them be in the past like I have like a huge distrust in how like we're currently like it seems and I suppose that's again like one of the indications that we have this kind of crisis in terms of creativity in terms of art is like how many kind of you know old acts are now kind of um resurfacing and kind of 
reunion tour or something like the bands who have stopped playing ages ago and now they're kind of mm-hmm. there again um someone dug them up and we're kind of returning to this kind of nostalgic past because mm-hmm. we're just kind mm-hmm. of dissatisfied with what we have currently so with your current dissatisfaction on the state of like newspapers and and theater and art in general is is there anything that like uplifts you in in the art space nowadays Um, <laughs> to be honest, uh, not really. Um, I think we're just kind of at this, uh, and this is like a, like a very interesting, but also like a super hard question. Like, to be honest, I think we're at this kind of a transitory um, point, or t- where I don't see anything kind of especially new emerging that would be um, like that. I would see it has a strong staying power. So is it transitory or is it just everything going to shit? Oh, like, I'm, you know, like if if you look at history, like we went through a lot of kind of crises like that. So like, I'm I'm pretty certain that at some point, like something new will emerge in some kind of a new configuration. But it's just that I think that we're kind of, um, right now we're at this stage where we're starting to acknowledge how hollow out, um, a lot of the institutions also like in terms of culture that we have are and it's kind of like the same as you can have like you know hollow out states which just kind of are states mostly by name but they don't function as such in terms of providing services to their people and this is kind of like the same thing is happening in a lot of um with a lot of institutions like i mean journalism is a prime example of um an institution being completely kind of hollowed out and yeah. overtaken by kind of essentially lobbies and PR firms. Um, and like, but it's the same thing, like in, in different aspects happening in other places. So um, I think that like what will now, this, this is not why it's kind of this transitory because we still like, we do have all these institutions in place and this, there is not enough overall satisfaction. Like just the crisis is not strong enough overall to actually, you know, um, force this huge shift and something new to emerge. So we have this kind of a, that's why I said it's kind of transitory or transient state where it's kind of clear that things are not really okay, but it's mostly just kind of remixes of the things that have worked instead of this kind of a radical rethinking of what's, needs to be done or what we're doing and just like what our i suppose being in the world is and how to kind of reflect that and um make sense of it or at least be in dialogue with it but do you think a regular person um, cares because like if, if you look people are still going to to movies like i think in in record rates but they're looking at like the same stuff recycled like like you said everything is a remix like the the big studios are uh, not encouraged to do any originals because they know that like uh, like uh, another of the same will sell better like we have now how many five transformers i don't even know anymore and it's all the same movie and and people will still go and watch it so it, is it like from a regular person view? Is it really a bad thing? I, I don't want to be like this pretentious prick that's like, oh no, like, no, no, please be, please make this interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, but the, like, I, I, like, I have a g- genuine kind of dislike to this way of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And I, like, I think like it's like basically like if you like something, then like for you, like it's great, and if you don't, you don't. Because, like I hate um, the. Um, you know, like the artists feel this kind of strong need to explain what they're doing. It's like basically like when I do a theater play, it is like what it is. Like 
if you saw something amazing in it, then great, it's amazing. If you did like, if you didn't understand or like, if you felt it didn't understand or it didn't do anything to you, then it then it's like for you it's shit. And it's like mm-hmm. it it can be both at the same time. It's not that we have to kind of find this consensus. And like having said that, like, um, yes, I think that kind of people are enjoying still like as I said movies and things. But I also think that um the quality or intensity of this enjoyment is not what it used to be i think mm-hmm. it's like kind of it's the same th- like this is probably like the best exemplified by just kind of um you know netflix binge watching a uh, binge watching and just kind of jumping from one show to another like i think that um how strongly um seeing something affects you is much less than it used to be you know like um because there's just this again overabundance of everything and you're just gonna i suppose slightly jaded you you get this kind of a new film like one week and there's going to be oh another sequel of something the next week or whatever and you you don't have this kind of a strong um emotional bond with the artwork like there are there are some examples and like i know like a lot of people kind of are make fun of uh like the harry potter fandom Mm -hmm. and like uh but at at the same time it, it is one of like for good or bad like it is one of the few instances where it actually kind of deeply touched people and like from my reading of history and how art was received like it used to be that the a lot of art worked in that way you know that that actually kind of deeply deeply affected people i mean if you kind of if you look back at you know like uh, the suffering of young Werther um by uh like that's like a book that's supposed to be like causing like um a number of young men to go and commit suicide um and this is something that's kind of you know completely unfathomable in today's world even though, like it, it might be kind of overstated its effects but just kind of even like the notion that art can move you in such a way to do something like that like we simply don't have that anymore well we have instagram where people follow uh, other people and they see oh they have such a perfect life even though they don't but they think they have a perfect life and that leads them to suicide so suicides are still happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah but for um, a different reason that's actually like a, an excellent point that you made that like you know a lot of the what kind of art used to be kind of can now shifted to different things or even if you just look at kind of the spectacle that's happening in the media with now everything like even kind of things that should be kind of rather dull political um machinations have now become this breathless spectacle mm-hmm. because again i think that you know on the one hand, we're kind of overstimulated by all this kind of different offerings, but at the same time, kind of nothing touches us deeply. So we are on some level kind of feeling unfulfilled. And that's why you can kind of, anything can now kind of, kind of has this kind of veneer of spectacle and we're just kind of latched onto it because like in hoping that to feel something more kind of real or more deep yeah definitely everything has become very shallow and and not not just the art i think also like human relations and friendships and all that everything well i mean yeah maybe like i'm, I'm not that old so I, I i don't have like a really good uh overview but that's at least how i feel like everything is becoming more and more shallow with uh, with social networks and everything you are not encouraged to have any deep relations with anyone and you sort of like if something bothers you on someone you just don't want to move forward you just move to the next person like you don't want to figure this person out absolutely i think it's kind of a lot of things can just feel because also like they are just essentially way more replaceable so we don't put the effort on it and it is kind of tricky because in some ways it's also kind of 
good because it does like having an abundance of whatever it also good because it means that you can kind of you can shape your taste better and you can find things you actually want or in terms of um kind of interpersonal relationships like you can move away from toxic friendships from toxic relationships mm-hmm. because you're not essentially just um limited to the people in your village or something like that um but at the same time like the problem is that um us as humans like we have evolved in that kind of context so that's why you know like we're still this essentially um evolved to operate in groups of probably like no more than 150 like it's the mm-hmm. the physical limit yeah yeah uh, like no more than 150 people and like that has ramifications and there was like in just you know or even if you look at kind of obesity like one of the reasons why we overeat is just because evolution like we've been kind of we haven't um evolved in an environment where you can always just kind of get up and walk to the five five steps to the fridge and have like a fridge full of super sugary and Mm. uh, high energy high calorie food and that's what kind of just is now messing up with our metabolism and like when just how our bodies are made and it's kind of the same with any kind of abundance it is on like for this ultra ultra rational human being it would be great but like we're not or even like yeah. it, it takes an concentrated effort to actually act in that way and there's like a lot of times when you just want to let go or or it just kind of becomes too exhausting or the complexities again some a lot of the complexity is actually like brought upon exactly because of this abundance and just kind of too much to think your way through and then we just act on various base instincts and also obviously there are a lot of people who are just kind of abusing this and like this abundance in terms of how they want to kind of market things to us Mm -hmm. but like if you do think about everything you do and like try to be rational then the decision fatigue gets you because there is only so much you can decide upon and then it just falls back to whatever you've been doing before this is why it's so hard to acquire new habits and then follow through like uh, i don't know diet or exercise or anything like that you really really need to commit oh yeah absolutely like it's exhausting oftentimes it's probably can't even do it and i think even if you do it like it's just kind of becomes unfulfilling in a different way because like um i think it's good that if you can kind of retain this you know childlike uh wonder and amazement and just giggle at things and be delighted <laughs> and like the more you think and through like the more you lose them so it is like that that's the problem we're kind of in this lose-lose situation um because like we don't have good i suppose like structures in a very like in terms of like some combination of beliefs and life practices um in our lives currently to kind of help us steer in that hard hard topics we picked so let's let's go for something lighter um you you said that you live in in the van or like that you're um uh, i don't know even how to phrase it but um your your one of your philosophies is van life um you so um tell tell me more about that i i like um metabase is a remote company so that gives me a lot of um flexibility in terms where i am and so and allowed me to do something that i've kind of been wanting to do for a long time and just kind of spend long stretches of time just traveling around in my van and i know again it's like one of those things that has now has become um completely obnoxious by the whole van life trend on instagram and all that um but still like there, like i like i suppose sim- like the simplicity of it and also just kind of um, the sense of exploration and adventure. And it, it is, you know, kind of 
we we have this bad luck, I suppose, in like being born in a time where like most of the grand explorations are behind us. And uh, if we'll ever get to explore <laughs> space more, we're probably slightly too early, or at least like we'll be kind of too old. Um, so, and you know, but something like you know, just being at least like somewhat being on your own, and even like spending maybe like a week kind of completely off the grid, um, just like kind of you in your van somewhere out in nature. That's kind of I find this um, both deeply fulfilling and just kind of simply fun in those like small things you know even like something like chopping up uh, firewood or something to make a campfire is mm-hmm. actually kind of is fun because it's just kind of a sense of adventure like i guess it is also like fun because it's not something you have to do so there's also the kind of a lot of things that we kind of consider a hobby if you have to do it full time obviously kind of um lose some of their shine but for for me and like the way i do it which is kind of on and off it is kind of this um great fun in doing such things and also just i think kind of you know the quality of life is just so much better than living in a city or something you know you you wake up to the sound of the waves by the sea you're outside in like in the sun in nature all the time it's just kind of simply a much better life and mm-hmm. it kind of also works really good in also even just in terms of both my um how i feel and also just my, my productivity is very high when it's bumming around so when you do that you said you go off grid so are you always off grid when you do it or do you just travel and work as well no no i'm I'm mostly like i work and even even when like off grid like you still can find at least from from time to time enough cell reception that you can Mm -hmm. um you know push the next commit or um pull what others have done and again one of the virtues of a small team is that also there's relatively little overlap between what you're doing so like i can do actually like large chunks without actually um using the internet mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. so that kind of gives me more leeway and it's like um i like off-roading and things like that so that's just kind of what drew me to kind of finding more desolate spaces and yes like the, just this sense of adventure is enhanced and like it's it's an, an amazing feeling when you find yourself somewhere where like y- you can't see any signs of human life anywhere where you look it's just kind of just nature all around you and you know it's probably gonna like stay like that the whole time like you're just not going to meet anyone <laughs> until you drive back somewhere more towards civilization so you plan these routes or do you just follow your nose and just go wherever kind of a combination like at least rough area i look kind of in advance or mm-hmm. at least like oftentimes you just kind of go somewhere where the weather is nicer like i'm not <laughs> a huge fan of winter so i, I try <laughs> to es- escape um and then but a lot of it is then kind of spontaneous i mean there are now nowadays of course also kind of various apps where you have like user contributed various off-road paths and things like that so sometimes i'll use those can you give an example of a couple the, yeah, the app, I think it's called Wikilock, mm-hmm. um, as in Wikilocation, and it has, like, um, that's one of the one that I've used the most, and it has mm-hmm. kind of a user-contributed um, GPS tracks, and, like, it's it, it covers everything from hiking to mountain biking to off-roading, so it's got a huge variety, and there are kind of a lot of, you can find a lot of interesting trails, but oftentimes it's just, you know, um, I just decided, like, completely on a whim you know you're just driving and you see this dirt road leading away from the road on which you are and you just kind of 
turn turn and then see where it takes you. And sometimes <laughs> like you just come to a dead end or something or like some farm and something just kind of continues going and going and becomes like uh the going is like tougher and tougher and you're just like a forest road. Where have you been like for for example what did made the the biggest impression on on you? Uh well I really loved Corsica. Mm-hmm. That was like it has this kind of an enough wild nature to be kind of uh really fun. Um but it was kind of beautiful um, I also very much like most of Spain, like especially like south of Spain, like and Andalusia is super nice. Uh, but also like inland, uh, I think like in terms of nature, just like mainland Spain is even more beautiful. But it does have the minus of not having the sea nearby, which is kind of a shame because like I just you know, um, I mean, I I love swimming, but probably what I love even more is like this the sound and the smell of the sea. That's like something so nice. Um, so I try to kind of find places where you always are in a relative vicinity of a sea. How long have you been doing that? Or like, where did you start? When did you start with uh, this event life? I've been now kind of doing it for um, about about a year. Oh, okay, so not that long, really. No, like I mean, I've been off-roading before, but just you know, like a with just like a four by four truck rather than having a camper van that's also off-road capable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like mostly around the place where I lived um, uh, at that moment. And do you bring a lot of stuff with you in the van, or do you sort of pack minimally? No, like we like we both like oftentimes my girlfriend will join me, and like we both are. Uh, uh, Back relatively light so we have just like one of those relatively small um vw t3s so like it's a, i think it's like a four and a half meter long kind of um van with four wheel drive mm-hmm. and it's it has like plenty of enough of space um for what we need so we're like we're pretty minimal and like i'm also like at, even like in normal or more sedentary life i was like live pretty minimalistically like probably like the the only um thing that i do have kind of a in abundance is books maybe books and house plants mm. and aside from that it's everything is like is very very um minimalistic and you did not switch to kindle or any other uh, ebook reader i also like occasionally i read on an ipad but i do like the physicality of books i love the smell <laughs> of a book especially like an old book and it's just kind of it is different i mean you know when like oftentimes I even have like both a physical copy of the book and a digital one, mm-hmm. because if you actually like, if you want to extract something from a book, like if I'm studying something deeply, I want the kind of ability to search. I want the ability mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. easily, you know, um, extract text, make annotations, stuff like that, which in digital works much nicer than in paper books even though like if you look at my books they're kind of going to be full of different marginalia marginalia scrolled uh, um written all over them but it's like discoverability kind of suffers if you're yeah. with, with a physical book so i kind of then in those cases like it's definitely digital or um but <clears throat> especially when just reading for fun and uh for fulfillment then definitely a physical book the the car the van you have is pretty old so um, if something breaks down like do you have uh, stuff with you to repair it or do you like do you like repairing cars or how does that how does that go oh yeah um i love uh, working on kind of especially old cars like the new ones have just like are have too much plastic and too much computers and <laughs> they aren't really meant uh to do to kind of work on them especially if you're just like a home mechanic and even if you look at how the 
um, professions do it. It's mostly just kind of replacing up, like throwing the part away and putting a new one in rather than kind of yeah. replacing everything. But yeah, I mean, like probably if I look at the, like the stuff I'm packing, like by far the most space is taken up just like by different tools. So like I do have a pretty comprehensive tool set and also got quite a lot of spares with me because I mean, like uh, our van is from uh, 1985. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty old and, they are, to be honest, um, not known for their reliability. Although, like, we didn't have any kind of serious issues up, up until now. Um, knock on wood. Um, but, st- <laughs> um, but I, I do spend like quite a bit of time also like, on maintenance, like preventive maintenance, and kind of working on it and slightly tweaking it. And um, also, like, when I bought it, it was in a pretty poor state. And like by now, it um, has you know, markedly improved. Uh, but of course, this you know. This, it's one of those things which is just going to be an ongoing project forever because like things break down or you want kind of um, something to either upgrade or change or whatever. So that's my understanding of what I want in a vehicle, especially one where um, I do a lot of kilometers in where I live, where I off-road. So it's going to be always also a balancing act between how capable you want your car to be off-road versus um, how nice it should be on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, like th- those two things tend to be kind of in opposition. So it's also trying to find the kind of this sweet spot and experimenting with different, you know, um, uh, sus- suspension setups and things like that. So it's kind of one of those things we can kind of constantly tinker. And it's mm-hmm. again, like brings me to what I was talking about at the beginning, you know, just kind of doing something with your hands and actually building. And it has this kind of a, a, a very noticeable and satisfying effect and especially because like it's an old car so everything's kind of it's mechanical so you have this yeah, yeah. immediate feedback in everything i completely understand it. it 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 feels so good when you repair something mechanical like i have a i have an espresso machine which is like uh, the design of it is from the year of 61 it's it's a new one but like they didn't change much since then and pretty much everything is user repairable and that's like one of the reasons I bought it because like if something breaks I can replace it myself more or less and the parts are like super cheap because like it's it's an old design not much is is changing and it's so satisfactory to just repair something manually and not just um like with like you said with a modern car I don't know there are just like sensors breaking and I I cannot like even if I knew what to replace I wouldn't be able to like you need so many so many like uh, custom tools and so much stuff that you just must have and to to plug it into a laptop which will tell you what you have to replace like it it got really complex yeah and it just like um also like this tendency of think making things as small as possible and then just means that you have to disassemble so much to get to certain parts and like but old cars they tend to be much everything tends to be much easier to access and so forth um and you know it it is like if there's like a job that even if you know how to do it just in terms of what you need to do but if it means that you know it's going to take you 40 plus hours of i don't know how much disassembling and then reassembling it's simply not um as inviting as if you know it's going to be something that's going to take you max a weekend or even just like one day of work and that can just invite you to do more things and with that you also get to know um both like just kind of your car more and just getting experience uh with how to work on cars so like mm-hmm. definitely like if any of your listeners is kind of think of getting <laughs> into something like that like start with working kind of on old cars or old mot- motorbikes because it's going to be much more inviting than uh, the things you can do kind of with new cars like the more the, like the higher the complexity and i guess kind of the same as in software like the higher the complexity the more everything kind of uh, becomes uh 
hard hard work on harder to understand and also like you're much more reliant on tools to kind of make sense of this complexity while with simpler things it's just going to basically just use your hands and a socket set and you're kind of Mm -hmm. set for a lot a lot of the things speaking of starting how did you get into like old cars and repairing that i've liked machines ever since i was a little kid like supposedly the first word i ever said was tractor Um, (laughs) (laughs) so it was was something and then like you know um i was kind of i I still remember um for my fifth birthday i got my first set of lego technic you know like the 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 lego bits with kind of more machine like and like i I was so proud because like on the box it said from six years and more (laughs) and it's like it was on my first birthday and i kind of love that and that kind of gave me more um i guess like the first insights into how uh, machines actually work in terms of you know transmissions and all those things um and so it kind of stayed with me and um then like basically like, even like the first car i bought was um already kind of an, an old jeep wrangler like the yj wrangler the super boxy one mm-hmm. um and that, that and so it kind of and like to be honest, like the the first and foremost reason why I bought a four by four as my first car was because I was kind of I I was pretty certain that like if I buy something that's going to be fast, I'm going to crash or maybe even like kill myself. So <laughs> I, I, I did like kind of off roaders and stuff. So kind of that that seemed kind of cool. And um, and I, I was you know I know it's kind of <laughs> super silly, but um, I was like I so liked that it. it had so many gauges. I think like that car has like. Um, you know, like it had like seven or nine different <laughs> gauges for like all the things that nowadays they, they put gauges in. Yeah, for roll and pitch probably and all that. Oh yeah, and just like you know, like oil temperature and oh, yeah, yeah. Um, battery voltage, just like anything <laughs> that you can you can imagine. You know, instead of instead of like idiot lights and stuff, you just had like gauges for everything, and it just like it felt so amazing, like sitting there and seeing like all those gauges move and stuff. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I got the, I got this Jeep, and then um, I kind of I don't know. It was just kind of curious and decided to kind of, you know, like the first thing was going to change the oil. And I said, okay, can I do that? Like went on the internet, like just read how you do that and like change the oil and then kind of continue kind of doing things. And like, mm-hmm. and then like, at different points, like things did break. I mean, again, that uh, I seem to have like a knack for getting cars that aren't like super reliable. So that, <laughs> that, that um, so like some things um, broke and like uh, the, the, pump for the um, for the power steering broke and so i just kind of went on kind of replacing it and just kind of slowly build up the experience of doing it and it was like always super fun like i, I have to admit like i wasn't kind of very good at it like even now i am kind of for something slightly clumsy and stuff but um like that's kind of the beauty of the internet like there is now enough knowledge on it that like if you are like even if you're not like super good at something but if you're kind of inquisitive and geeky about it you can just kind of learn enough that you can make those first steps and there was the kind of people you can ask and it turns out that like there's so many uh wonderful kind of communities for every kind of fringe thing that you can kind of become part of and they will kind of help you and guide you through things so it was kind of like a, a very organic thing just kind of i suppose a next step in my love towards machines and yes like step one like you get some cool machine and then like you want to experience it to the full extent which also means getting your hands dirty and understanding how it works and Mm -hmm. ultimately working on it and building it and eventually also like maybe making it better yeah i I would just like to add that uh lego techniques definitely like also for me it's it's such a good thing i I remember i was also 
too young for what for the set I got was something with hydraulics and and whatever like it was it was beyond my age by far so like my my father cut the the tubes and everything <laughs> but it was so rewarding to get everything uh working I still remember like the pump going and then the the crane turned like basically just with with the power of tubes and air and I I, I remember that being like super fulfilling and probably one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing now <laughs> yeah like Lego is amazing, and like, and a lot of ways, like it's one of the, the the few things that hasn't lost its way. I mean, even though like a lot of the kind of modern sets are like they have, for my taste, uh, slightly too many kind of uh, specific or like um, set specific bricks. But at the same time, like they also like they do keep like they have some sets where it, like this original Lego spirit shines through and also like some of the innovations that are actually like rather good, you know, like the Mindstorms, the, the kind of the mm-hmm. robotic pro- uh, program, mm-hmm. that, that, that thing is just kind of amazing. Uh, and like, I am kind of like, I think it's kind of like by far the best way to introduce, for instance, like a child into like programming and thinking about kind of modern machines, which are all in some ways a robot i suppose like by virtue of having a computer in there and that's like a such amazing kind of piece of um both toy and technology um yeah i think we could talk for another hour or so but <laughs> we have to wrap up at some point <laughs> uh I, I would like to ask you for uh, recommendations for our listeners and that's going to be like three things which can be books or articles or videos or like whatever um that made like an impression or on you or like change your life and uh, outside lego techniques <laughs> <laughs> um I, I suppose most of your listeners are developers um like the rest aren't probably going to um appreciate this as much but go and like read and study on lisp machines and like small talk from the 80s and how they had this like completely integrated development environments and how kind of dynamic it was and what kind of feedback loops that opened up um Mm -hmm. it's like that's one of kind of my um pet peeves is that like it feels it it feels that we've forgotten so much in terms of programming and the tools we have like we've made not not just that we haven't like you know like a lot of people are saying oh like there are no new ideas in like um, programming or whatever since the seventies or sixties or and yes like that that is for a large part true like with some notable exceptions but what I find much more concerning is that our tools have actually made a massive step back mm-hmm. from what we had before and I think that's kind of limiting us to no end and causing a lot of the frustration we have now kind of in day-to-day lives as developers there's another another episode of uh right there just just about this <laughs> <laughs> well I'd love to come and talk about this because uh, <laughs> it's it's one thing that I kind of I feel very um strongly about um so can check read up on that um I don't have any kind of concrete articles in mind right now, but like I'll dig up some of the stuff that's kind of worth uh, uh, reading on that. Find some like find something where uh, you know that you can do kind of with your hands and like build in some sense. Like for those who aren't, I was like I, I came first like to cooking very late, but I then like at some point it's kind of I realized that like cooking always is kind of like hacking, and from that point on I started just first in, like enjoy it, and now I kind of I love it, and it's this kind of ritual that I do almost every day. That I cook because again it's something you know kind of it has all those kind of elements of experimentation mm-hmm. and but it has there, there's a system behind it, there's a logic behind it, and you build something like with your hands. So find like something like that. So it, it, there's like a huge spectrum yes like working on cars uh building you know miniature models of something cooking but like 
find and do something like that like it will like I, I think it just kind of it's super fulfilling and it also like from all the topics you talk about like it's, it seems that I am kind of super scattered all over uh, <laughs> but at the same time like for like in terms of how it feels to me is that like all those things like do kind of there are a lot of ways kind of in dialogue with each other and they, they do complement each other and there's like a strong spillover effect from doing one thing to another. It kind of it changes either your perspective or it gives you kind of a new skill that you can then reapply in some different area. Mm. And that's kind of, I guess, like this is kind of this fun of recombinating things and, you know, finding your own thing. So yes, like do something where you can kind of build stuff or like at the very least, like just kind of, you know, um, go to a to a Lego store and just like splurge out on a bunch of Lego sets and build things. Um, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's something I have to kind of uh, fight against, kind of the urge of doing kind of quite often. <laughs> yeah, just want to you know like buy a huge stack of uh, of new boxes of Lego bricks, find some of my old um, like in, at my mother's, and like bring all those together, just like build things. Um, that's a it's a great way to end it. I I agree absolutely with all of that. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, like I said, we could have talked for another two or three hours probably. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you, Simon, for, for your time. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, this was my interview with Simon. I would love if you would share this podcast with your friends and followings. Send them a message, tweet it out, or write a Facebook post. You want them to listen to a good podcast, right? If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, you would truly make my day if you post a review there. I get a lot of DMs, but no one else sees those. Reviews are there for everyone to see and they help other people discover good shows. Like, you know, this one. If you use a different app like Breaker, Overcast or anything that supports liking or favoriting, I'd appreciate your action there as well. You can also support this podcast with money. I know that right now you're probably running, driving, walking a dog or doing dishes. But when you come back to your computer and your hands have dried, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash that's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D or open the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Thank you. You can find the show on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at Parapaspot on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website parallelpassion.com slash 22. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.